Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we're discussing science and spirituality, and whether science needs to be as separate from spirituality as it has been. We will, do, we will be discussing the spiritual experiences of some of the world's foremost scientists and how those experiences inspired and impacted their scientific careers. My guest today is Dr. Paul Mills, PhD, who is a professor of, in public health and family medicine at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Mills has over 400 scientific publications in the fields of pharmacology, oncology, cardiology, psychoneuroimmunology, behavioral medicine, and integrative health. Today, we are discussing his new book, Science, Being, and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. This book just won the 2023 Gold Nautilus Award for the best book in science and cosmology. You can find out more about the book and about Dr. Mills at his website, pauljmills.com, pauljmills.com. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Paul Mills. I'm really delighted that you could join me today on the podcast. Thank you, Laurel. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to our conversation on this topic. Me Thank too. You. Before we dive in to that conversation about science and spirituality, let's begin. Let's begin right where we are with a yoga moment, a moment of being right here and right now. So let's begin by just bringing our attention to our body, feeling our body in space, whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing, walking or driving, just being right here, feeling the the surfaces that support our weight. Now let's turn our attention to the breath. Just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how now that air has been warmed as it passes through our body. Staying with the breath, Staying right here and right now, here's something to contemplate from a daily inspiration by Yogacharya O'Brien, the Yoga Hour's founder and spiritual director. She writes, there is a response to every soul call, guidance for every seeker of truth, a solution to every problem and an answer to every prayer. To receive that answer, find that solution or hear that guidance, recognize the one divine reality that is with you now. In the silence of our soul, 
the Lord of love knows even those dreams we leave unspoken. That divine power will light the way to their manifestations. In the silence of our soul, the Lord of love knows even those dreams we leave unspoken. That divine power will light the way to their manifestations. Oh. Once again, Paul Mills, welcome to the Yoga Hour. As I chatted with you briefly uh, before the um, interview started, I did want to say that this is such an important book uh, for me, someone who is trained as a Western physician, but who also has an always, well, for many years, most of my life had an abiding interest in the direct spiritual experience of oneness through mysticism. And through that lens, I absolutely adored your book and see the importance of it. So congratulations on receiving the 2023 Golden Nautilus Award in Science and Cosmology for the book. And just from the bottom of my heart, gratitude to you for writing the book. Um, because Thank I do you, feel I do feel like it's really an important one. And I'm, I'm just thrilled that it's out there in the world. So to me, one of the most important aspects of your book is that you take on the materialistic worldview of science quite directly. In fact, that's kind of where you start in the book. And when I refer to the materialistic worldview of science, what I mean is science's limiting view that the material world that we perceive through our senses is the only world that exists. And that view that dismisses all spiritual experiences out of hand. And of course, from that perspective, this includes the strict materialistic worldview that consciousness is only a byproduct of the brain. It's just, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a fact that we have a brain, but there's just this electrical activity that runs through it that gives the appearance of consciousness, but it doesn't really exist. It's just a byproduct of the brain. And I was very touched by reading uh, what you wrote in the introduction. And you had shared um, before, right before this, you had shared um, a vision that you had had of um, a potential future for humanity of seeing the manifestation of love itself come into creation. And you and you write then, what are the biomedical sciences and scientists working? Um, what are the biomedical scientists and the scientists working in them doing in terms of helping or hindering this future goal of humanity? Are we in service to humanity's future advancement or not? Which I thought was such a great question. So how do you see this materialistic worldview of science, scientism, as you, as you put it, as limiting the spiritual evolution of humanity? Mm. Thank you. That, that is the question, isn't it? And thank you for bringing up that initial vision that was really one of the main reasons that I wrote the book wanting to understand what, what is all the science that I've been doing, most of my traditional biomedical scientific research and teaching, has that been really helping or hindering the future spiritual unfoldment of, of humanity? And, and science, I mean, what is it? It's, it's essentially just a way of knowing. It's a systematic, reliable way of knowing that in our current epoch is the dominant way of knowing. And for a variety of reasons, I try to cover in the introduction over time, we've turned it into a very materialistic way of knowing, meaning if you can't see it with the five senses, historically, then it doesn't exist. It's led to a lot of closed-mindedness and so much 
adverse downstream effects throughout the world, certainly in the Western culture, because most people turn to science for answers. Mm. Not only about whether this pharmaceutical drug lowers blood pressure or whatever, but right. about other answers, including the mystical and metaphysical. And if science says it doesn't exist, well, okay, it doesn't exist. I will ignore my inner experience or impulses and so forth. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's been a, a great loss for, for so many people. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated that you also included uh, there's a little there are little sections in the book of spotlights uh, by other authors. And this is from the first spotlight that you do. And I may not get this name correct, but Kyriakos Markides. Is that right? Kyriakos Markides, Ph.D. Anyway, he wrote this section that um, actually brings forward abundant examples from other disciplines that really bring this this uh, materialism, biomedical sciences, materialistic worldview into question. And he lists things like the Big Bang theory of the universe, quantum physics, which as I, I'll talk more about that in a second, but then also studies, scientific studies of psychic phenomena, studies of near-death experiences. I mean, there's a lot out there that is outside, it, which is ha- where science has studied these things, but it's outside this, it, you know, it, it, it is incongruent with the materialistic worldview, right? And so it, it struck me that, you know, biomedical science is kind of stuck in this, in this vision of the world that other disciplines, including physics and quantum mechanics, as I said, if consciousness can have an, a, a, an effect, like light can be either a particle or a wave, but it depends on us and how we look at it. So the, our consciousness coming into, uh, you know, interaction with that, with that beam of light has a, an impact. I mean, how can you explain that, you know, within the material world? So anyway, I was just struck by that as I as I read the, you know, the spotlight from Dr. Marquides. Did you want to comment further on that? It's it's so puzzling. That would be my first comment that, yes, we've had advances, particularly in physics, but other some other realms too of, of science that really have taken us beyond the traditional materialistic endpoint, that threshold that nothing exists beyond. And yet, certainly the sciences I've worked in, that you've worked in, medicine, biomedical sciences research, have not ventured beyond that. And scientists like myself who have tried to venture beyond it, we've had to find other venues, other non-traditional institutions to do the research in, um, certainly non-traditional, not top-tier journals to publish in that are willing to take this kind of material. I mean, fortunately, it's slowly changing, as you know. And I try to document some of that in the book by interviewing scientists who have had openings. And and honestly, we both know that what does it take to have an opening? It takes an inner experience for a person to have some kind of transpersonal or or a mystical or metaphysical. And then then it's known. Mm -hmm. It's known that there is something behind the so-called veil in this place, we could say the veil of materialism. And then life takes a whole different turn. Yeah, which you do such a great job of, you know, documenting with these stories of spiritual experiences of scientists in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so t returning to your spiritual journey, you shared that you began meditating in high school and ended up attending Maharishi International University, eventually getting a PhD there in neuroscience and focusing your research on meditation. And you de describe several of your own mystical experiences in the introduction to the book. Would you give listeners just kind of a brief overview of a couple of those, maybe briefly tell us about your spiritual journey? Sure. Thank you. I will. I can begin by one of the most, the, the first impactful ones. And that was shortly after I learned Transcendental Meditation. This is when I was in high school. And what led me to learn TM is I, I always had a preponderance toward, let's call it the metaphysical and searching for things more than I was being educated in with, within the, uh, the Catholic tradition, which, which alludes to certain mysteries through the sacraments, but it, it doesn't really take people who within the Catholic church to the next step, so to speak, in terms of supporting experience. So I had learned TM, and within a couple of months, I basically had an out-of-body experience when I sat down to meditate. And of course, it was, I could say, shocking. It was surprising. I had no idea what was going on because I had never heard of such a thing. But in a few moments of the experience, I settled into it, and then everything seemed very familiar and comfortable and peaceful. And that led me to the question, well, who am I really? Am I the Paul Mills I've known myself to be? Am I this larger Paul Mills that seems to be beyond the confines of my body, that's in more of a unitive state with, with everything else and everyone else? And that's what really led me to become a scientist because I wanted to do research and find answers to the questions I just posed right here, as did many of the scientists I interviewed who had experiences when they were young that they then said, well, science is the way to know. So I'm going to become a scientist and I'm going to figure this out. Wow. That is just, that is so great that that's such a recurrent experience in the book. You have people being drawn to science, but also I'm just imagining has led to incredible frustration as they run up against, you know, what we've just been talking about. I mean, this, this over, over attachment, to the you know material world, which I actually love how you point out that's not even scientific. <laughs> I mean, we're supposed to be open-minded as scientists, right? And have a questioning, you know, you don't want to abandon the tools of science, but isn't science always trying to find out about the unknown? So basically to take everything that, you know, anything that can't be experienced by the senses and just like throw it off the table and say, absolutely not. It's not a very scientific attitude, is it? <laughs> in my book, not at all. And, and that gets back to the scientism piece, which you said. And we all know any, any ism is a red flag. Mm. It's mm -hmm. mean, whoever's adopted that particular ism, and there's you know, hundreds of them out there. We know some of the more dominant ones. That means they've closed their mind to any other possible explanations, philosophies, points of view, and they're, they're hanging their hat on that. And that's it. And it's hard to get people out of an ism to open up other than, you know, direct experience. Again, that's, that's, that's the wild card. And if a person's fortunate enough to have some kind of revelation, whether it's on a spiritual experience or just a deep insight intellectually, if they happen to be in a particular ism that's closed-minded, a philosophy, whatever it is, religion, then they can reclaim, really reclaim their mind, I would say. Mm. And, yeah. and the, uh, the gifts that the mind can give us as far as 
analyzing things, thinking, reflecting, reason, bringing the heart and intuition, right, so forth. As you were talking, it was struck me as to reclaiming their wholeness because this is part of us, and so many people do have an experience of that feeling of connection to a oneness that is greater than ourselves. That's not, in my experience, it's not actually very uh, unusual for people to have that kind of a transcendent experience, whether it be in a beautiful scene in nature or, you know, being with a newborn baby or, I mean, so many things, you know, can trigger that. Um, And then if you have to just basically say, oh, all of that's baloney, all that's phony, all of that's just, imagination or you know whatever explanation materialist explanation you can give it then we're losing a part of our wholeness so um anyway that's kind of how i look at it you mentioned in the writing the struggles you have had as a scientist in choosing to share the mystical experiences that you've had and you write this was also a concern to several of the interviewees some who were you know um able to grant you that interview and then some that you tried to interview and didn't want to do it because of this. So would you say a little bit more about these concerns? And I was particularly wondering whether there have been any negative consequences to your scientific work through the publishing of this book. Mm-hmm. All right. So a couple of things about that. Yes, there were quite a number of scientists I approached to be interviewed and they said, Paul, look, I've had metaphysical, mystical experiences and so forth, but there's no way I'm going to talk about it. And uh, for the most part, everybody who said that said it because they worried about their academic career. The scientists that I approached who said yes, many of them were further along in their career, had uh, a tenure at their academic institution, had a lot of grant money or you know clinical money coming in. So they felt uh, kind of buffering that, okay, I'm going to be able to speak about this and I'll be okay. I'll take a few hits perhaps from colleagues, but but they were at a point in their life that they felt it was important to do this sharing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there was one person who said they had such experiences, but they wouldn't speak about it because their specific spiritual tradition oh. discouraged sharing such experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for myself personally, uh, I'm in the latter stage of my scientific career. Yes, I've had tenure, had a very good reputation, lots of scientific publications, and I just felt uh, it's time I need to do this. However, as I also noted somewhere, I think in the introduction, yeah, there was an ongoing dread about sharing some of these things, uh, particularly the opening experience with this great cosmic being about the future of humanity, some other uh, more mystical experiences that I allude to. And, and, and it's a balance because often we, we do want to keep certain experiences private. I think that's yeah. important. And I certainly kept the majority of things that are very dear to my heart, private. On the other hand, we need to share such things with people so others know that these things happen, they're real, and and then that can help encourage others to to follow whatever impulses are coming within them to unfold them. Absolutely, and that's one of the other things that I really value about your book is that these are scientists who are acknowledging having these experiences. So again, it's sort of, you know, poking at that wall, you know, and, and hoping to loosen a few bricks, you know, in a few minds and hopefully the whole thing will collapse, you know, at some point. I mean, what, what I look forward to actually is, is um, once there's more openness and more studies about this stuff, um, I just think it's going to be a revolution. Like for me, as a practicing physician, there was such a reticence, um, even, even though, um, as I mentioned, 
to you before we started, I got a master's in holistic health before I went to medical school. So I was a very early adopter and innovator on that, um, on that path. And so I was kind of dismayed to get into to medicine, to go to medical school, get training in internal medicine and end up in a, you know, an organization. And even where there were, um, uh, more, tremendous more, you know, tremendously more inroads of alternative uh, practices into institutions like you are at UC San Diego, and I know that there's an, um, you know, a complementary medicine or alternative medicine institute there, which is the case. I think you mentioned in the book. There's something like 70 of these across the country. So that is tremendous progress from when I was first, you know, applying to medical school in say '81, where the idea of holistic health was just like. <laughs> So bizarre. (laughs) Everybody thought that it was just absolutely, I I don't know if I got any questions about it during my interviews for medical school, it was a lot of skepticism, let's just say. Um, You know, so to see it more widely accepted is wonderful, but I just feel like there's so much farther to go and there's so much uh, resistance still, I think, among many people, even within a particular organization that may have a complementary and alternative medicine unit, there are still a lot of physicians who wouldn't bother to refer patients, even though it's proven to be scientifically beneficial. They wouldn't, they wouldn't go that extra step and actually refer a patient or, or recommend it to a patient that they get that kind of therapy. Say, for example, if you're diagnosed with cancer and you're getting chemotherapy, also getting some kind of alternative therapy as well. Is that what you found? Because I know you're... Yes. Yeah. I have seen that. And I also will add, it's loosening up a bit over the years uh, at UC San Diego, our Center for Integrated Medicine started out within the Department of Family Medicine and really had to struggle to get a foothold and get some attention. And, and then it slowly started uh, getting referrals out to other apartments, all outpatient. But the last couple of years now, there's a fair amount of work going on inpatient. So it slowly had an unfoldment. And I want to add something about that because the field of integrative medicine that's often called integrative health now that's really been a primary venue within medicine, Western medicine, the allopathic, of having more of the wisdom from these other traditions come in, including what we could say more the metaphysical, the transpersonal, because these traditions that we've borrowed meditation and acupuncture and healing energy, as you know, all speak about the fundamental of consciousness and our identity. Right. And we've been able to write some articles and publish them in some of the integrative journals bringing these concepts in, mm-hmm. that it's time, uh, if we if we want to really have whole person medicine, which is a goal of many of the integrative centers, then, hey, we can't, ex- we can't exclude the transcendent anymore. Right. And, oh, and that's coming so along. <laughs> so great. <laughs> um, you write in the book um, that one of your interviewees said, science is a mystical path. Mm-hmm. And you continue that is in its essence to explore and help us to understand ourselves and the world around us. It has the potential to unlock many metaphysical and mystical aspects of our existence. May all scientists awaken to that perspective. The spiritual is the final frontier for science. Such a great, it gives me like goosebumps to read that. It's great. So would you say <laughs> yeah. more about, oh. you know, about, about what you just wrote about, you know, about science as a mystical path? Yeah, so that the scientist who said that was Dr. Julia Mossbridge, and she's an amazing person. I love her. I love her work. And she had a whole very interesting trajectory as a young person where she began to have some exposure to scientists, science, 
through a particular scientist who was her father. Excuse me. And it was through interacting with him that she began to understand the potential for science, to unfold what is beyond typically the materialistic veil. And she was the one who said that, that science is essentially a mystical path. And for her, she uses science as a, as a discipline to unfold her own consciousness. Mm. Many traditions have meditation, though, your yoga hour and yoga and on and on. But for her, the, 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 the mechanism, the endeavor of science and how you do it, step one, step two, step three, is actually a way for her to unfold her own spiritual life, which she's been successfully doing. And yes, I do look at the spiritual as the final frontier for science. It's, it's the area that's been excluded, as we spoke about earlier, but it's slowly unfolding. I mean, think about the, you know, the scientific endeavor in the world is billions and billions and billions of dollars spent every year. And what if we could just open up some percentage of that to begin to delve into the true nature of humanity and human beings? How would that really help our spiritual evolution? individually and then humanity as a collective how would it transform us how would it transform our cultures and all the things we need to overcome mm. and a lot of the things we need to overcome have to do with this illusion of separation right. amongst individual people and cultures and, and and so forth and to move into a unitive state and I, I do try to cover some of that in the final chapter six of the book speaking about different visions of the future of the world and humanity and people who have written about it and it's a beautiful vision. And, and the thing is, I, I, we're going to get there. It's going to be a bumpy ride, but we're, we're going to get there. And, and that'll be a beautiful day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you were speaking, I was just thinking about um, the, the uh, uh, kleshas um, in yoga, which are these um, uh, obstacles. And the first obstacle is uh, avidya, which is uh, not understanding who we truly are. And pretty much everything you just said was talking about that, you know, mistaking who we truly are um, and uh, feeling separate, that sense of separateness, you know, versus our, our feeling of connection to the oneness that there is. So, um, yes. so as we've been alluding to, your book uh, goes into some interviews that you had with some of the world's foremost scientists who recount mystical experiences that were very transformational for them. So what inspired you to take that particular tack in the book, mm -hmm. to interview scientists about their mystical experiences? Well, back to this initial vision I shared in the book of this cosmic being showing me essentially the future of humanity and this unfoldment of love in our dimension. And then that question came, well, Am I, am I helping this phenomenon? Am I hindering it? What are the biomedical sciences doing? And I thought, well, to answer that, if I can just speak with other scientists mm -hmm. and they can tell me, are they, how to put that? Are they on an evolutionary path themselves? And if so, is there science evolving? And what does that mean? Well, is there science now beginning to help tell us more about the nature of human being and consciousness and reality behind the materialism. That was really the impulse. I wanted to know what's the landscape these days, because I knew that essentially I've been in the closet, so to speak, about all these kinds of experiences, my whole professional career. And I imagine there are plenty of others too. And if I get them to open up and share, then, then we can start moving things forward. Uh, so basically that, that, that was it.
Yeah. yeah. But then, then comes the question. So you're in the closet. So how do you then learn about these other individuals who are also in the closet? <laughs> how did you find people? And I get not everybody that you approached said yes, but there are a, quite a number, a pretty vast number of people that you interviewed in the book. Yeah. Uh, so uh, some of them began because there was a period in my work at UC San Diego, I started collaborating with the Chopra Foundation. And uh, Deepak Chopra at the time, he had these conferences at his center called Sages and Scientists. And he would bring together scientists to speak on topics alongside sages whom he would you know, bring from around the United States and the world. I'd attended a couple of those and, and I got to hear some of the scientists speak. So I started thinking, hmm, okay, they have some openness. So I did it that way. I had attended some conferences, uh, science and non-duality amongst others. I would begin to meet people. I would read a book about a person. That's how I started tracking down. And I started knocking on doors, really sending emails, <laughs> describing the nature of the project. And can I interview you? And that's that's how I built up that roster. I, I think I interviewed about, it was a 32 or 33 people in the book. Wow. Wow. That's so cool. <laughs> so we'll get into more of the, some of those stories that you share in the book. But as a reminder to our listeners, today on the Yoga Hour, my guest is author and professor, Dr. Paul Mills. He is a professor of public health and family medicine at the University of California, San Diego. He has extensively published, I was very impressed by this, by the way, over 400 scientific um, articles and publications. And he is the author of the book we're discussing today, Science, Being and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. This book just won the 2023 Gold Nautilus Award for the best book in science and cosmology. You can find out more about Dr. Paul Mills and his work at his website, pauljmills.com. This link will be on our website at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. So I, I'd like to dive into some of the stories now, Paul. So um, you have different chapters in the book based around the hero's journey, the one that Joseph Campbell lays out. Well, I don't want to go into that too deeply, that is the structure that you follow in the book. And the first part of the journey um, that you get into the stories in chapter two, it's called Heeding the Call, the Making of a Spiritual Scientist. And here you focus on scientists who had a spiritual experience, often early in life, that they felt as a calling, which then led them to science. And you write that there was such variety um, to these experiences, um, the commonalities being that they were deeply personal and that the individual then came to use science to better understand their experiences. So did you want to comment on that? Uh, yes, yes, I do. Uh, and you're right. Many of the scientists I interviewed had what we'll call spiritual experiences, and I can share some of those, when they were very young, and that led them to be scientists. Others they just followed a traditional scientific path, got into a discipline because whatever, they liked biology or they liked physics or they liked medicine. And then they were already adults and were already a scientist and then had some kind of spiritual opening. So I interviewed people whom this happened to, to uh, different categories like that. 
Um, and, and what I wanted to comment on too, when we were doing our meditation at the beginning of the show, and you shared a quote from uh, your center's founder and teacher, how she said, uh, we get these callings and the kind of the divine will support us and guide us. And that that is very consistent with the idea behind the, you mentioned uh, Moyers and Joseph Campbell's monomyth that he speaks about in the book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces. And I, I look at it as if we are, of course, deeply spiritual beings. We live in this world and, and the, the spiritual is always trying to get our attention, always looking to have us wake up beyond our very limited perception and experience of ourselves as just a mind-body only, the, the egoic identity. And this awakening can happen anytime, as you know, at any age, in any place, and it often does and typically does. And then it's up to the person, what are they going to do with that? And that in the monomyth is called uh, having the call, awakening to the call. And then do you, do you listen to, to the call and start changing your life? Or do you retract from it? and go back to what is known and comfortable and safe. And hopefully for most people, they cross the threshold and they begin that journey. Mm -hmm. uh, there were so many, uh, we spoke earlier about science and how science has been this arbiter of truth. And typically for people, if science says it's not true, then they just turn away from whatever that was and they continue down the road. Right. One of the scientists I interviewed, his name was Thomas Brophy. And he was very psychic as a young kid. And he shared with me some stories when he was playing cards with his father. And he would get these images and he would see all the cards in his father's hand. Oh, wow. And he would say, Dad, you have this, 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 this. And it would freak his dad out. And there was very various permutations of that story. But essentially, at the end of the day, his father said, that's impossible. You cannot see my cards. Yeah. Science says that psychic phenomenon are not true. So this is not true. Now that that cultivated Thomas to say, I'm going to become a scientist, and I'm going to use scientists to science to prove that this is true. And of course, he did. He got into physics and astrophysics, and he's had a great career. And there are many other stories like that where parents would be reacting in a negative way to the young person's experience, whether it was some clairvoyance they were having, or clairaudience, or psychic phenomenon, and on and on. Yeah. Uh, I could tell you one other story now, if you'd like, around yeah. that. Yeah, okay. Well, one of the uh, uh, interviewees, her name is Dr. Melinda Connor. And when she was young, she was psychic and very clairvoyant. And at one point, she shared these experiences with her mother. And her mother became very distraught. Mm. Now, it turns out her mother was a psychiatrist. And her mother said, okay, Melinda, you're, you're coming to work with me tomorrow. And Melinda said, great, you know, I've always wondered what you do, and I'm going to come to work with you. And her mother brought her to work, and her mother sat her down in a chair in a hallway and said, just, just sit here for a little while, I'll be back. Well, while Melinda was sitting there, there were certain people being escorted up and down the hall, and they would be brought into a room. And Melinda would see them go into the room, and then you know, she's waiting and waiting, and then sometimes later they would come out. And when she would see them clairvoyantly, it was extremely disturbing and shocking to her the difference between what this person looked like after they came out versus when they had gone in. After a couple of hours of this, and by this time, Melinda was distraught. Her mother came out, sat down next to her and said, Melinda, this is what happens to people who hear voices, who hear other people's thoughts. 
And her mother was running the ECT, electroconvulsive therapy unit there at this medical center. And she wanted Melinda to see what happens to people. So she was trying to scare her daughter to turn off all these senses. And for the most part, please don't speak about it because it's not going to go well for you in our Western culture. Fortunately, Melinda had a grandmother who was very psychic and clairvoyant, and she took Melinda's side and they quietly cultivated and maintained her ability to understand what was going on. And now she uses these gifts uh, as a person and and as a scientist. Wow. What a a frightening experience for a young person uh, to, you know, to, to have that. I mean, I get it, you know, from what we were just talking about, about how it would be viewed by others, but um, one of the other stories that I enjoyed in uh, this chapter was uh, the story about the game that Rudy Tanzi played with his twin sister. <clears throat> Would you describe that game for our listeners? I sure will. And Rudy's an example of a great, uh, highly successful scientist who has kept his spiritual life alive and over the last few years has begun to speak more about it. And I think it's been helpful for many other scientists because he's really a top, top tier scientist. And, and I also, before I tell you the specifics of the story, this is an example of how I think the, the, the spiritual faculties we have, the, the bioenergetics of our body, the psychic levels are always trying to find expression and they'll come out in sometimes unusual ways. And I think this is a very unusual way. When he was young, he, had a, he has a twin sister and he and his sister would play this game. And I don't know how they came across it as an idea, but this is the game. They would begin this game by imagining what if what if the world what if our house didn't exist and then they'd say okay what if our house didn't exist? what if our parents didn't exist okay and just imagine that on a feeling thinking level okay what if this didn't exist and they would work themselves down by elimination till they get to the point of what if the universe didn't exist and what would happen he described he had this experience what he called the flip And it was deeply somatic experience in his body and his consciousness that would alter him substantially for for some time. And his sister would get it too. And they would play this game and try to race each other till they got to the flip. For For him, this was a kind of a transpersonal experience. It took him out of his normal thinking and feeling. And that for him was really the beginning. And that led him to begin to study lots of other traditions. He got deep into Carlos Castaneda's and the art of dreaming and the Toltec tradition. He found out that he's, he's an extremely good lucid dreamer and he's developed that method. And he has used lucid dreaming as a way to get answers to his scientific questions. And then he ended up writing books about this. He's given some lectures on it. So that's an example of very unusual way that the, uh, he began his spiritual path by playing a game with, with his, his sister. I was just <clears throat> thinking about myself in, <clears throat> excuse me, in childhood. And I don't think that this game would have ever entered into my imagination <laughs> ever. So that's, I think maybe why it, you know, it fascinated me to, uh, to read about that. Um, let's see. Let's go on to um, chapter four. Uh, which is entitled From Trials to Commitment and Transformation. Um, so this part of the journey is um, where 
everyone is on a spiritual path. They've made that, you know, commitment, they've stepped onto the path and then there are barriers, you know, that, that come up and there's a need for uh, perseverance, which I think is something that many, if not most of people on a spiritual journey have experienced themselves. So something brings us to seek out that which is greater than ourselves, to ask questions about our existence and to seek answers. And then, as I mentioned, we can, um, you know, encounter difficulties. The journey can be rocky and sometimes difficult, but then with persistence, we can experience the transformation that then comes through, you know, bearing with that. Um, I appreciated the quote from the Nobel Prize winning scientist Barbara McClintock at the beginning of the chapter. She said that if you know you are on the right track, if you have this inner knowledge, then nobody can turn you off, no matter what they say. Yeah. So you gave many examples in the chapter, and I thought I would let you just share, you know, one of those, um, one of those from one of your interviewees or, or something from your own life. Mm-hmm. Okay. I love the way you just describe that as a, as a larger part of the, the so-called monomyth, all of us on our journeys, and we get uh, these inner callings to begin to make a change. And they're often forces that want to discourage us. Certainly, historically, people in a meditative community, or you, you had gotten your master's in holistic health, you get into medicine, and there was a lot of pushback. So you had to keep that alive, not in the context of your medical practice at the time, but in some other way. Right. And that 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 is such a common part of the monomyth. Many families, you know, we have the black sheep concept. Well, you're a person in the family who's trying to go in a different direction than the herd, and and on and on, and uh, and often these uh, adversaries they're just a reflection of our own fears, our own inner darkness, so to speak. Those of you who are Star Wars fans, that whole movie is based on the monomyth, and they worked with Joseph Campbell. And uh, uh, what, the young Luke Skywalker, who's his main adversary? Well, it's Darth Vader. And there's a scene in the movie where he's confronting Vader and they have a fight and then he realizes he's Darth Vader, the whole scene in the movie. And and these are powerful uh, stages of our own consciousness development where we have to push through our own fears because essentially, what is it? It's, It's us transcending the our known identity at the time and moving into another identity, which is more expanded. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the stories, let's see, uh, I know uh, this Cassie Veaton has a fascinating one because she, she was a scientist at at an institution at the university of California, San Francisco had already had a meditative experience as well as some other things. And she wanted to, begin to do some spiritual research. In fact, there was a a grant proposal call that came out to study spirituality and alcoholism. And she was interested in studying alcoholism. That's why she was in this lab. But she was also interested in understanding the spiritual contributions to help people overcome it. And this was just part of her own biography that led her to this. And she went to So now we're going to talk about the adversary. And she went to the chair of her lab group and said, hey, this is fantastic. The National Institutes of Health has just put out a grant proposal. We can study spirituality and alcoholism and let's do this. And and she got the strongest pushback from her chair. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. We're not going there. That's a waste of money on and on. The kind of dialogue you might expect 
from somebody who's more materialistically oriented and just wanted to pursue receptors and molecules and drug therapy. You know, that, that was the limit of the, the vision. Well, this, this kind of crushed her a little bit, but then she dug in and found her resolve. Mm -hmm. And she realized to herself, I've got to get out of this lab. I need to find another institution where I can pursue this growing inspiration that's coming within me. Yeah. And so she confronted an adversary, uh, overcame it, and she found another institution. And that ultimately was the Institute of Noetic Sciences, where she ultimately became uh, you know, a scientist there, a director of research, president. And now Cassie's at the University of California, San Diego, my institution. Yeah. And she has a professorship there. She directs what's called the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Imagination. Mm. Uh, we spoke about the Center for Integrated Medicine at UC San Diego. And there's a center for mindfulness as part of the Center for Integrated Medicine. She's the director of the Mindfulness Center. Wow. And you see San Diego is a big deal. It's, you know, it, it's been ranked second in the United States for research amongst all public institutions as far as scientific impact. So it, it has the potential to do really good work. And Cassie's a great dedicated scientist and she's doing research now to begin to further break down these barriers that we've been speaking about as far as the materialistic side of, of, of science. Yeah, I thought her story was so interesting when I read it. And I, I loved that she actually had science to come back to her department chair with, but he remained kind of unmoved, it sounded like. You know, so, so um, for those who are familiar with 12-step uh, programs, there's tremendous science that underlies the, the beneficial um, uh, approach of these 12-step programs, including this idea of a higher power. So this idea of spirituality and alcoholism actually had a pretty significant scientific base. And for that materialistic perspective person to come at it and just basically dismiss it out of hand as a waste of money, um, when actually um, that approach, this 12-step approach, including this higher power work, um, mm. has a lot more uh, scientific evidence than any of the drugs that we use to treat alcoholism. So anyway, I just thought that was actually a great example of both oh, everything, really, I guess, that we've been talking about, the materialistic view and also, um, you know, also the, the barriers, you know, that she had to overcome uh, to be able to do this work. Yeah, and she did overcome it, didn't she? Uh, she yeah. stuck with her guns and has flourished now as a scientist mm -hmm. and advancing all these areas, of mindfulness, meditation, energy, imagination. Mm -hmm. It's been a beautiful journey. I've, I've loved watching her. Yeah. So one of the other uh, chapters um, is called Giving Back in the Next Generation. <clears throat> and you you say this at some point in the book, probably multiple times, but I remember reading it at least once, you know, at, at a certain point, you know, if we have that kind of experience, that transcendent experience of oneness, <clears throat> you know, what do you do when you come back from that? You know, what there is to do is is to give back, you know, is, is to, you know, open these teachings for others, um, you know, to do... Um, in yoga, one of the paths is the path of, of um, selfless service, you know, so to serve to serve others. Um, <clears throat> so you offer several stories of science scientists, <clears throat> excuse me, who have had um, these deep spiritual experiences that we've been talking about, um, who um, one of the one of the uh, um, people couples that you talk about is Tamara and Mike Goldsby, who have studied the effect of sound 
and specifically singing bowls on brain and cardiac systems. Mm-hmm. So would you would you say a little bit more about about this couple, their work and how giving back is now an important role for them? Yes, I'd be happy to. And yes, this giving back, uh, seva is another word on, on yes. that we're familiar with. Yeah, it becomes a just a natural impulse, doesn't it? A, a, at some point in our spiritual journey, particularly if we feel we have something to give back and, and we have to find our way to bring it back. And it's also a very important stage of the so-called monomyth or the hero, the heroine's journey. They've, they've overcome the obstacles. They've stayed true to themselves. They now have a gift that they've brought back from the spiritual dimension and they want to share it. <clears throat> And Tamara and Michael, uh, yeah, great, great people. Uh, she got deep into the so-called singing bowls, often called Tibetan bowls. She studied at length with someone from Nepal who had a deep family, like a Dharmic lineage of these things. And she began to experience the benefits for herself and her husband, Michael. And she started offering these uh, sessions with these bowls at a local institution in Encinitas, California. And that grew and grew to her realizing this, this is very powerful, vibratory medicine, essentially. And she reached out to me at some point and we conducted a, a scientific study, which we published. And, and I, she's gone on to do some other publications. And that's their devotion. And she shared a story with me. I don't think it's in the book, but they were down in, uh, in, in was somewhere in South America. And she was on a beach just playing the bowls, just she and Mike just exploring. And and a bus pulled up, and this bus had uh, a lot of uh, children from a special needs school. And they were going for their whatever daily or weekly trip to the beach, and the children unloaded and started playing at the beach. And they were just playing their bowls. And before you knew it, these children were gathering around. And some of the children were crying. It was just deeply resonant for them. And... uh, Mike and Tamara had needed to go off to an appointment and they just stayed as long as the children were there because they didn't want it to end. Mm. And so now they're collaborating with somebody there. Uh, oh yeah, it's at the University of Uruguay to do research on how this, the, these bowls and the vibration might help children with special needs of, of all categories to help them have some kind of healing and um, inspiration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful story. So in the last chapter of the book, you pose the question, excuse me, how might science look when more scientists take up the journey to awaken to their true self? What a fabulous question. How (laughs) might science look when more scientists take up the journey to awaken to their true self? What would you comment? What's your comment about that? How would science look? Yeah. It reminds me, one of the things I wrote in that section of the book, in the same way that the individual human being, part of our own spiritual journey, we need to transcend our essentially egotism or our identification with our ego. And for me, when I say ego, I mean essentially just our mind-body identity only, this vessel, to to have a transpersonal perception beyond that and incorporate it into wholeness in the same way that that is our spiritual path as a human being, then the spiritual path for science is to transcend its over-identification with basically the material, materialism. And by transcending that, science will be set free 
Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, if you know him, he's a, just a brilliant guy. He wrote a book a few years ago, Set Science Free. And this book, I'm kind of arguing, set scientists free by allowing them to go deeply into their spiritual experience. And how will it look? Well, I think we've, we've hinted at this a little bit earlier, but if we have scientists around the world freely pursuing their inspiration, and, and for those who want to pursue more spiritual type research, then what will they begin to uncover about the nature of humanity? Certainly much of it will be consistent, presumably, with many esoteric traditions, which already through, we could call it subjective sciences have uncovered the nature of a human being. But then also what about just setting scientists free? Because many scientists who pursue a spiritual path become much more creative. And some of them share that with me in the book and just how the advances they're gonna have in their own field, even if they don't want to do any research in the so-called spiritual world per se but just the advances. And um, I mean, very importantly, I'll add that how much of it might be more morally correct research because we have so much advances in science. People just create things that end up killing life, nature, humans, and beyond. And we just keep doing it anyway. And I would like to believe that scientists who are very spiritually awake would not be willing to move into certain directions and, and, and set parameters and boundaries. Uh, I, I don't think that's naive, but maybe, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's, that's another part yeah. of the vision. Yeah. Well, it's a very, it's a very hopeful vision. And um, again, I just um, really feel that in this book, you've made a big contribution to opening a door um, that I that I hope many you know will go through. So as we come to the end of our conversation today, are there any words of encouragement or inspiration that you would like to leave with our listeners? Yeah, thank you, Laurel. My, my words of encouragement and inspiration would be to those of our listeners who who have impulses arise in them of a particular direction to to open up to new ways of seeing new ways of knowing, following their heart, following their inspiration, following impulses that are arising in them that are, let's say, not consistent with the, the normal life they're living at the time. And I'm just speaking about back to this idea on the monomyth of where the spiritual world's always wanting to awaken us for the purpose of expansion and self-realization. And, and to pay attention to these impulses and take a look at them and find ways to listen. And then of course have discernment. And what is this impulse trying to tell me? What do I need to do? What new knowledge can I begin to follow and learn to be inspired to do justice to what's being called of me? Yeah. And where within that do my gifts lie? If I feel I'm not really having a life where I'm expressing my gifts, use, use that ability of listening and discernment and inspiration which is there all the time. I want to add that um, there's uh, my publisher, Sacred Stories Press, has a, a, a series of books called Common Sentience. Mm. And I've been part of a podcast where we've been interviewing people who are authors of the books. And one of the ones we did uh, just a few weeks ago, the book is titled uh, Signs, S-I-G-N-S. It's, it's basically about all the ways that nature and the world around us is trying to get our get our attention giving us signs endlessly 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 along right. these purposes of helping us wake up 
and become whom we're meant to be. And they're there all the time. We just need to slow down, take a breath. I appreciated your mindfulness exercise at the beginning of our, our interview. Listen, <laughs> they're there for sure. Each of us has them and, and to listen and, and find it and, and follow it to do justice to it. Yeah. One of the things that I <clears throat> thought about earlier, but didn't comment on uh, as a byproduct of this, um, you know, first of all, that, that science plays such a prominent role in our, in our culture first, but then secondly, <clears throat> excuse me, a byproduct of this um, materialism, scientific materialism is the way that we treat the material world. Mm. as you know something that is uh, outside of ourselves that is not connected to ourselves that is for our use and not necessarily for our protection and mm. um so it's it's you can say that that's one of the consequences you know of this scientism this you know this this uh, materialistic worldview that really needs to change as is becoming seems to me more and more apparent like every day <laughs> mm. so with that <laughs> Thank you. If I may just thank you for saying that. That's a vitally important piece of it that I, that I didn't mention. But you're right. That that level of transformation alone would lead to a better world, yeah. a healthier world, environmentally and so forth. Hmm. For listeners, you've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Dr. Paul Mills, author of the book we've been discussing today, Science, Being, and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. You can find out more about Dr. Mills and his work at his website, pauljmills.com. This link will be on our website at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. Again, you can contact us via that website where you can sign up for the mailing list. Thank you so much, Paul Mills, for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. I've really been delighted by our conversation and by this opportunity to speak with you. You're welcome, Laurel. Thanks for having me on. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, the sponsor of this program. There is daily meditation in the mornings at 6.30 a.m. That's Pacific time, the afternoons at 4, and Monday evenings at 7.30. Again, all those times are Pacific. We also have a Sunday satsang. Satsang is a Sanskrit word, meaning a gathering of truth seekers. That happens at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. <clears throat> Listeners of this podcast might also be interested in another podcast, the Kriya Yoga Today podcast with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts and also at csecenter.org, where you can also find out about many details for many, many other programs as well, csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I will be joined by Nayaswami Devarshi of the Ananda community. We will be discussing how the teachings and practices of Kriya Yoga can be life-transforming. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, that SEVA that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment is a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, Christine Sote, and Lauren Leidinger. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Mm -hmm.